welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Uh, good. It's good to talk to you. I'm always uh, excited to talk to you, no matter what has happened. By the time we start talking, then I'm happy. <laughs> That's great. I I also enjoy this. Again, seeing as how we're just not able to be physically together at this particular time this season. It, it's still great to have this time together to just be able to talk. And, you know, even though, I, I don't know, this is something that we've committed to do every week. So as long as the come follow me thing is going on, it's still nice that you and I have this carved out time where we actually get to, you know, have these conversations, visit with each other and just, you know, otherwise discuss the gospel with each other. It's dope. I, I like that this podcast mm-hmm. exists, if for no other reason, to at least give me this time with you, you know? Well, that's good. Yes, sir. And uh, what do all your friends at Union think about the podcast? You've told them about it. Do they? Did are they impressed? Do they like? Ooh, that's exciting, or that's really cool, or what do they do? Well, I had one person who uh, I know at least a few of them have checked the podcast out. Uh, one of my friends who happens to be sick, S I K H. They they let me know that they uh, checked out the podcast, but you know, and you know, you've you've critiqued the show because of this in the past because the content is relatively esoteric they weren't able to get a lot of it um Mm. but they still said it was cool and they still enjoyed what they were able to uh, pull out of it so i'm gonna take that and uh the rest of the folks who are christian and checked it out they have been able to uh enjoy the show for what it was as well and that has sparked further conversations about you Mm. know mormonism and stuff i i still get the question when people find out that i'm mormon just more or less I mean, the question is basically, what am I doing here? But uh, Uh-oh, that's not a very nice question. You know, I don't like the question, but at the same time, this is a question I have to be ready to answer. And I, I know where it's coming from, especially since the majority of the folks that I hang out with here at Union are black folks. Um, I, I do have to, like at some point, I do want to be able to give them a concise, relatively quick explanation of what the church has to offer to folks like us. But, you know, every time someone asks that question, I feel like I can never give an answer to the person that's asking because they're each each person that asks me that question is actually asking me a different question. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like when they ask, when all of them say the words, why are you a member of this church? Or why is a black person a member of the church? They're each looking for a different answer. And I can't do that in a quick, you know, 30 second elevator pitch. You know what I'm saying? 15 seconds, whatever it is. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, to, to, to those of my friends who actually are listening to this podcast here at Union, um, I, I am working on an answer to that question that will hopefully satisfy the majority of y'all. But um, if you just, if you just ask me when I'm off guard one day or just ask me aside when it's just the two of us, it's going to take a longer conversation than the time that we have. So just, just be aware of that. Right. And, and also I think that's connected uh, with the, yeah. the other question that I thought that they would have is like, why would a Latter-day Saint come to union? Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't think that's a good question either. It's not, a, it's not a fair question. It's not a fair question. And, um, you know, I'd be harder on folks. I, I, I would definitely be harder on, uh, on a non-black folks asking that question of me because, like, the reasons are personal and they're also very hard to try to, like, relate. You know what I'm saying? But asking about somebody's spiritual journey is 
already a fraught question to begin with. I would just like people in general to exercise a little bit more care when uh, they ask questions about a person's spiritual journey, especially marginalized people in uh, spaces like Mormonism. Like that is a much more fraught question than you might think if you're not already, if you don't already understand that. So just want to put that out there. Yeah. And that, I might, I might get myself in trouble here, but for our friends in the ex-Mormon community, like I don't ask them like why they left the church. I don't, Mm -hmm. that's their journey. I trust them to be responsible for their journey. They are not a, they don't have to explain it to me, and I don't feel it's my business to pry. Um, so I don't just randomly ask a person, like, oh, why did you leave the church? So I yeah. just don't do that. Like, and apparently I'm supposed to. Like, there's a, num- a substantial number of ex-Mormons who say, all of my Latter-day Saint friends, I left the church, and they didn't even ask me why. I'm like, well, I didn't. I don't think I'm supposed to ask you why, but... right. Anyway, and it depends on the nature of your relationship with that person. Like if you've lived, like if, if your spouse left the church and you never were curious why, that's one thing. But for me, a random stranger who's an ex-Mormon, like I don't need to know why. So I think it all comes down to like what relationship you have with that person. But Certainly. anyway, let's get to talking about, we have sections 137 and 138 today. We do have sections 137 and 138 today. Before we go ahead and launch into that, just want to remind y'all that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So we are again in sections 137 and 138. Both of these sections deal with uh, questions about life after death, more specifically salvation after death. 137 being an unprovoked vision given to Joseph Smith in the temple and section 138 being a vision uh, given to Joseph F. Smith brought on by much study, much prayer, and certainly... uh, and certainly the circumstances of uh, Joseph F. Smith's life, and that we'll uh, talk more about spirit paradise and prison, feels fitting that these sections are basically answering both uh, eschatological questions and soteriological questions, but probably probably more the latter, though, since this is ultimately a question of, uh, of salvation. Would you agree with that? And, you know, it, it gets back to, I think, in context, it ends up being a pastoral question, because what you're dealing with is family members whose loved ones uh, have passed on, right? And they need some care in that moment. And this is speaking to that issue. And I think that gets back to the historical context behind both of these. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of pastoral care, Brother Joseph didn't get any of it 13 years prior to this revelation when his brother Alvin died. Joseph was basically told by an ecclesiastical leader that Alvin was in hell, presumably because he never got baptized. And I can only imagine how hard that was for Joseph to square with the goodness in his brother, as well as a just and merciful God. I I couldn't find any evidence that Joseph had ever attempted to reconcile this information via study and divine inquiry, which, which made me wonder if Joseph, like the many of us today, was so steeped in traditional Western Christian ideas that he didn't even think to question 
widely held beliefs like the death is deadline teaching in his day, or for us, the gay is sinful teaching. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if Joseph has asked this question directly before, but if it is the case that Joseph didn't ask this question directly, then God's timing of this revelation is pretty interesting. Probably Joseph carried that assumption with him uncritically that his brother was in hell. And that's why he was surprised, he says in verse 6, that he marveled. Yeah. Like he was yeah. shocked to see to see um, Alvin in the celestial kingdom. Like yeah. He wasn't prepared for that. He probably hadn't been contemplating that, but he was shocked. He should have been shocked to see his father and mother because they were still alive at the time of this vision. Mm-hmm. But yeah, verse five, he says, I saw Father Adam and Abraham and my father and my mother and my brother Alvin that has long since slept. Mm -hmm. Verse six, and marveled how it was that he had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom. Yeah, thank you for pointing pointing this out that he marveled. I, I noticed that as well. And I still have the question as to why Joseph Smith got to receive this revelation that he didn't seem to ask for and receive information that he gladly accepted, but was nevertheless not ready for. It, it's perplexing, but also comforting that God would, that God could work in such a way so as to still be able to communicate things to us that we're not necessarily primed to receive, but nonetheless willing to receive. Per perhaps there's still some relevant context that I'm missing, but if not, there may be a lesson in how the Lord worked with Brother Joseph here. I've received I've received, and acted on seemingly random promptings before that turned out to be necessary communications, but I definitely kept myself open to such promptings. So perhaps it's not so out of the way that the Lord could give folks whole revelations like section 137 unprovoked. Such a thing is just, I guess, foreign to me. But to bring it back to the text, I don't think we explicitly said that this text says that anyone who died or will die without receiving Christ will get an opportunity to accept him. So basically the whole, the big breakthrough of section 137 is that physical death will not be a barrier to one's salvation. Yeah. And I like to, um, point to this as one of the castle texts. We've talked about these castle texts before, but to remind everyone, this is sort of a text that you use to fortify yourself, especially if uh, for queer people. Something that you can mm -hmm. retreat into to protect yourself from all the awful things that people are going to say about you based on nonsense. You know, And here's one of them that I think, as a queer person, I rejoice in, that I'm going to be judged according to the desire of my heart. So I'm not going to be judged, judged according to any checklist, right? Mm -hmm. Did you get married to a woman? Did you get sealed in the temple? Did you do the hokey pokey? Did you turn yourself about? No, I didn't do any of those things. But it doesn't matter. I don't care. I have nothing to worry about because there's this, um, I'll be judged according to my works. I'll be judged according to the desire of my heart. And... Of my heart. and yeah, like the Lord knows my heart. Maybe you don't, which is why you're trying to bully me into following this narrow path that, that isn't even what is appropriate for me. Mm -hmm. But I like sort of using an analogy to say, well, some people say, oh, well, you you died without being, you're not sealed to a wo woman. I'm like, well, 
Maybe it says all who have died without sealing who would have sealed it if they had been straight, right? They'll they'll be heirs, right? So I think there's this mm-hmm. workaround. It's 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 sort of this conditional thing here that's going on that anyone who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs if they mm-hmm. if they had the opportunity. And I don't have the opportunity um now, right? So I don't have to worry about that. And so I think there's a lot of anxiety about, oh, no. And there's even queer people who get married to someone of the uh, of a different gender just because they feel like they have to. And I'm like, you don't have to. This mm-hmm. says you don't have to, right? So that's kind of my take on it. And I definitely want to get more into that uh, once we get to Section 138 because uh, there is – there's a lot going on here that I think could be super beneficial to any any marginalized group, but especially the queer community who I thought a lot about um, in my reading of this particular revelation. And I want to know if you got uh, any any thoughts on it. But is there anything else in 137 you wanted to point out before right. I just jump and sections? I want to talk about what I think I've called before this ever-expanding in- circle of inclusion. Ever-expanding circle of inclusion. And... So in 1820, the circle of inclusion, those who knew the gospel, well, it was just Joseph right there, the first vision. He was the only one. Why did jo- why did the father and the son appear to Joseph and not someone else, right? Yeah. And you could have maybe sort of even make it really clear by saying, okay, if you're a missionary and you're knocking on doors along the street, you have to go to one house before the other. Which one do you go to first? Is it fair that you go to one and share the gospel with them before the other? Right? And it's the same thing if uh, which village you go to first. And so there is a sense in which some people are going to receive the gospel before others. And we see this in Romans chapter 1 where we have the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Mm-hmm. And now there's ways that apologists could twist this to justify discrimination, but that's not what I'm right. doing. What I'm saying is that these people who have come first are a blessing not to be first, but they're blessed to be a blessing to others. For example, Abraham in uh, was blessed to be a blessing to others, to be a father of many nations, not just one. And through him, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And I think God uses means. God uses relationships. And we see this in the calling of the 12 apostles where Jesus actually picked up people from the side of the lake and said, you're going to follow me. You're going to be my apostle. I'm going to send you out as a traveling missionary. And God could have like made a digital sign blink in front of everyone's face at the same time throughout the world. But that's not what God did. God works through means, through relationships, because God is love and actually has sent out, which is what, what the word apostello means, to send out these apostles as a way of using these relationships as tools for the advancement of God's reigning activity on earth. And it's this foothold theory that I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So when the when the uh when the Allies landed in Normandy Normandy on D Day in nineteen forty four, they had to land somewhere. You have to land somewhere to get a foothold to go elsewhere. And then eventually they uh, filtered throughout Europe. And I think it's the same thing here. We have this inbreaking of God's reigning activity in the world. 
And it's done through footholds. It's done through relationships. It's done through individual people. And so that, I think, is part of why we don't get everyone at the same time. But we, what we do get is this ever-expanding circle of inclusion, starting mm-hmm. with one person in 1820, mm-hmm. then to a handful of people, then to more people. Mm-hmm. And then in 1836, we we now even having it expand to include the dead, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that came as a shock. And I want to hold up that 13 years, right? Because mm-hmm. we had 13 years that God let them go without a knowledge of how dead people who had, through no fault of their own, died without being able to receive the restored gospel. Mm. They did not, they had a big gap in the plan of salvation. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a big gap in the plan of salvation now, and it's lasting a lot longer than 13 years. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. For the salvation of queer families. Mm-hmm. And I think I can trust in this ever-expanding circle of inclusion. And I also want to go the other way. You also go from the outside in, from the okay. margins in, beginning with the, the one. Christ leaves the 99 to go to the one. And leaves the people who are centralized to go to those who are marginalized. And I think it's the margins that end up holding the church. And you can see uh, this ever-expanding circle expand from both directions, from the center out and from the outside in. And God flows among the margins, and that's actually where God works. So that's kind of all I wanted to say about section 137 for the moment. I'm sure I'll have something else. Oh, absolutely, because 138 is very similar. It deals with similar conversation that I hope comes back up again, because, uh, I mean, just look at these conditions. The date of this revelation, like, I want to start there. This is um, October 4th, 1918. This is the latest revelation we have in the Doctrine and Covenants, and we are we're out of the pioneer era. Like that's, that's bygone. The president of the church at this point is Joseph F. Smith. Uh, Mm. The first president of the church, I think you pointed this out before, Derek, the first president of the church to have been born in the covenant, so, so to speak, or born into the faith, the first non-convert of the church. Uh, At the time though, this revelation was received. The general understanding of Christianity was that death ended your opportunities for salvation. So if you if you didn't receive them in life, right. that was it. That's what we just spoke of when it came to uh, Alvin Smith. Uh, Joseph Smith, Joseph F. Smith, rather, had lost both of his parents when he was young. He would bury 11 children. And at the time of this revelation, World War I is ending and would claim around 20 million lives the global flu pandemic is also happening and mm-hmm. would claim another 50 million. Joseph F. Smith is pretty sick himself. He's been ill for a good five months, and he's actually about a month away from death at this point. And he was apparently sick enough at this point that the Saints didn't even expect him to show up at the conference that he eventually ended up introducing this revelation to, uh, or at least speaking that he received this revelation. But all this to say that Joseph F. is He's, he's way too familiar with, with, with death, and it would stand to reason that he would engage questions concerning death and life after death. What, one could say that because of his circumstances and his experiences, as well as his willingness to intellectually engage these rather difficult questions, he was uniquely qualified to receive 
such a revelation that now blesses all of us. And there's at least a couple lessons here. Um, one is a lesson that we saw back in the book of Alma when Alma the Younger is speaking to his son Corianton about, interestingly enough, the uh, the resurrection of the dead. That's uh, Alma 40, I believe. Mm-hmm. That is doctrine we have because Alma inquired diligently of God that he might know. And now that information he inquired uh, the Lord about, that's in our doctrinal canon. And when you think of Alma's life and ministry, he has done and seen some pretty horrifying things. He spoke of spiritually murdering God's children prior to his conversion. He's he's witnessed awful wars that claimed thousands of lives, and he saw women and children murdered for being believers. His ability to receive such a revelation was probably also informed in part by his experiences and perhaps even his traumas. There, there, that's, a, that's another lesson there as well. We, we can't dismiss the, uh, mm. the importance or the or the relevance of our experiences or uh, the experiences of others when it comes to revelation. Those things are usually why we seek revelation in the first place. I mean, that gave us a lot in the Doctrine and Covenants. It gave us the priesthood. It gave us, you know, the word of wisdom. It gave us, you know, some other some other commandments, some other directions. The uh, Nauvoo uh, revelations that we initially got were basically about our mission going forward that were, you know, tailored to our context and our circumstances at that particular time. Mm-hmm. So the, these things, I'm trying to say that those things matter. These events in our lives, these experiences, these circumstances, they matter in uh, this revelation, both in how we interpret the revelation and uh, what revelations we end up seeking. Um, in this particular case, uh, Joseph Joseph F. Smith had a lot of questions revolving around uh, life after death regarding you know what happens to the dead um, at a time where death just seemed to be all around him. So I definitely right. don't want to discount the role that uh, people's particular circumstances have and what revelations they seek and how they interpret the ones that, uh, you know, that currently exist. Yeah, I think placing this in the context of, you know, shortly after a major pandemic, shortly after a war to end all wars, which Mm -hmm. didn't end all wars, this uh, this is real. I mean, there's a lot of people wondering about these existential questions what happens to their loved ones what happens to people who never heard the gospel and i think that um that joseph f smith's vision here actually brings hope and it serves as a in a sense a victory over the forces of death and despair and the chains of hell right i'm i'm thinking in my yeah. head of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I was talking to a member of another church, a Christian who's in an, in another church, and he was asking me about baptism for the dead. And he says, like, that's kind of weird. That's kind of whatever. However, if you look at what it says towards the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, death, um, where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? And if death somehow serves as a deadline beyond which God cannot redeem, that beyond which love cannot have an effect, and beyond which Christ cannot reach, well, death has a big sting. 
If death somehow binds God, and oh no, God was about to save this person, and but they died, and oh no, God's hands are tied. If death can outwit God, then death has a big sting, and death mm-hmm. has a victory. Mm-hmm. But Paul testifies that the victory is Christ's, and that Christ has overcome death. It's and it's all about the resurrection. And of course, earlier in First Corinthians fifteen, verse verse twenty nine, we actually have. Paul discusses baptism for the dead without giving details about it. Surely the Corinthians knew what he was talking about. But anyway, mm-hmm. I just find that 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 death is uh is the last enemy to be destroyed and death will death will die. Death will mm-hmm. die through 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 its own death, right? And I think it's by death, by Christ's death and resurrection that death is conquered so i think it's a very poetic circle that comes full circle and we get um we get the uh well we get another testimony of what it says in in the eighth chapter of song of songs that love is stronger than death yeah so that's that's what i have to say about this all right i like that a lot I also wanted to get your feelings on uh, verses, uh, well, what I believe verses 27 and 28 seem to be teaching us. This is another part of the revelation where uh, Joseph F. Smith makes an interesting observation and then an interesting inquiry. Uh, This is talking about Jesus Christ's ministry during between his uh, death and resurrection. It says, but his ministry among those who were dead was limited to the brief time intervening between the crucifixion and his resurrection. And I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the son of God preached unto the spirits in prison who sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah and how it was possible for him to preach to those spirits and perform the necessary labor among them in so short a time. So what I found interesting about Mm -hmm. this is Joseph F. Smith is basically saying, hold up, this doesn't make any sense. The math don't work. How did this actually go down? And then he's uh, given his answer in verse uh, in verse 30. Jesus had actually appointed and commissioned folks to spirit prison uh, to preach. We, we were just taught something here. And uh, we actually did this a bit last week with the questionable verses in section 134 about slavery. But Joseph F. Smith saw something here that didn't make sense to him. He sought clarity on it. Then he received that clarity. And now we have all this brilliant and beautiful doctrine about the workings of the spirit world. It's okay to wrestle with text. I, I feel like all of us have been doing this together over the last couple of years we've been you know, doing this show, but we don't often come across examples of wrestling with text in the text. And this seems kind of small potatoes at first glance, this question of how the Lord did his ministry in those three days between you know, his death and resurrection. I mean, that that's just a question of math, it seems. But the answer has a variety of implications that he gets into several verses later, one of them being that we are going to be engaged in this work of preaching the gospel to the dead uh, when we're done in this mortal life. We, 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 too, are asking important questions about the text because some things don't seem complete and other things just straight up don't seem to make sense. And there could be other issues, I guess. Point is... We can ask questions, and we can wrestle with the text, and we can wrestle with God. The prophets did this, and they got incredible revelations. There there really ain't no reason that we can't do the same. And I think the most important thing that 
Joseph F. Smith did is the thing that he didn't do. And the thing that he didn't do is assume that they have everything that they need, right? Because it's right. very easy to say, you know what? Joseph covered everything we really need to know. And he look at all these revelations. He's, he's, he pretty much completed the restoration. And I think you kind of could get that impression even in 1918 because you don't have many revelations after Joseph. Mm -hmm. You have... Well, section 135, which was given right after Joseph's death, a testimony of his uh, martyrdom. You have the mm -hmm. uh, section 136, which is Brigham uh, Brigham's one canonized revelation we have uh, in 1847. But then that's it, other than the 1890 official declaration one. So by the time it rolls around to 1918, it would have been very easy for us to say, you know what, we don't need to worry about it. Doesn't it doesn't matter to our salvation? We already have enough. If it was good enough for Joseph and Brigham, it's good enough for us. I don't need to ask anymore. And I think there's so many people that have not lived into our birthright. We've, um, we've sold our 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 birthright uh, in in exchange for this mess of lentils mm. that is not actually uh, and our birthright. Of course, is the right and privilege of continuing revelation. Mm -hmm. And I think. That we could have a revelation like this every year if we lived in up to the privilege of it, right? <laughs> yes, sir. We could. There's yes, just sir. so much more to learn. There's just Absolutely. so much more that we don't know about the plan of salvation and so many details. And people are like, oh, well, it'll all get figured out in the next life. Well, why not figure it out now? Right. Right. There are consequences. Why not figure it out now? Why not take it to the Lord? Figure it out now, right? Let's, mm -hmm. just, let's just figure this out. Let's just figure out the LGBT stuff right now. And so... I just love that Joseph F. could have leaned on the predecessors. He must have had how many predecessors? Those there was Joseph Brigham, five or six. John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow. Then was it Joseph F. Smith? I think it was Joseph F. Number six. Yeah. So he could have said, you know what? We've had all these presents before. They didn't cover it. I don't need to cover it. Like, I don't need to worry about this. It's not a salvation issue. Like, no one's annoyed, you know. He could have said that, but he didn't. So the most important thing he did was the thing that he didn't do and just assumed that he know that what was good enough for the predecessors was good enough for him. And that's exactly the argument people use against the LGBTs. They say, well, Joseph didn't have gay marriage. Well, yeah. Well, Joseph didn't. You know what else Joseph didn't have? Joseph didn't have what Joseph F. Smith got right here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you took that same attitude, you wouldn't have had. You wouldn't have gotten Section One Thirty Eight. Right. So yeah. But but ironically, I think if you look at what Joseph did and said, you can find the seeds of liberation for LGBTQ people there. He was very expansive in what he said. I think when you look at the text around the sealing power. There's no way that it already doesn't cover queer people, right? I think if we mm -hmm. sealed queer people, they would be sealed. We don't we don't need any additional sealing power. It it would cover them if we have the boldness to do it. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. nothing that Joseph did that excluded that. So so that's kind of where we are and we're back to this power dynamic where people who have the power don't have the curiosity. And the people who have the curiosity don't have the power in the church. Mm. 
I just want to point out verse 39, and our glorious mother Eve, this was in Joseph F. Smith's vision, and our glorious mother Eve with many of her faithful daughters who had lived through the ages and worshipped the true and living God. So this is the great and mighty ones, great and mighty ones. Um, so I'm glad that they have, that we've acknowledged. I'm curious about all of the unnamed faithful daughters who, who, who aren't listed here, but that mm -hmm. would have been a good example of, of these, these great ones here. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And just going back to this theme of, uh, liberating the captive, that idea actually occurs three times throughout this whole uh throughout this whole section it's weird i literally just started utilizing the tags feature of the gospel library app you can like not just highlight things but also tag things under particular you know topics or whatever tags you want to give them and uh, the first time i noticed it i was like oh that seems like a useful piece of information let me tag liberation here and i ended up finding that three times throughout this entire section so not a coincidence, I don't think. I, I haven't thought or poured over it too much, but since we are talking about granting salvation to those who have passed on when we have previously understood them to be ineligible for such a gift, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the biggest issues we are wrestling with today are still issues that are at their heart issues of liberation. You know, I want to lift up something that I've learned from Zandra right. about redeeming the dead. And she says, I don't have her exact words, but if you think about some of Brigham's teachings, and now he's dead and he's not here uh, to repent. But verse 58 says, the dead who repent will be redeemed. And so what Xandra does is she says, look, if we stop teaching those problematic things and stop quoting and stop uh, reinforcing what Brigham said, that allows him to repent of those things, right? Because he's not here to stop it, but we can. And it's almost certain that Brigham now has progressed enough to realize he was wrong about those racist things he said. And he would never mm -hmm. now, assuming that he has, has repented, he would never support us quoting them. He would be the first to say, you know what? Guys, just stop quoting me. There's more truth and light in the world now than I was around. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so... By refusing to teach the problematic things of the leaders who have gone before, we're helping the dead re uh, repent, and we're helping to redeem the dead, which is one of the tasks of the church. Mm -hmm. And I've often thought about this, like, how, how, how are my writings and this podcast going to be received in 50 years? And I'm like, hey, if you're listening to me 50 years ago uh, from now— and you see problematic stuff that I wasn't aware of at the time, go with the new thing. Don't go with what I said. I probably didn't even think about it. <laughs> yeah. So just go with the right thing no matter what I said it was. so Written in the stone now. It's on the internet, so it's pretty much permanent. Yep. Can't erase anything on the internet. Uh, thank you for lifting that up because, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I didn't actually, I do remember uh, the live that she did on this subject, but it did not even occur to me. I even have this verse highlighted, uh, verse 58. It was verse 58, right? Right. Yeah, the dead who repent will be redeemed. But I think I would just highlighted it to, you know, even actually highlight this fact that the dead can repent in the first place. And this is, again, referring back to this assumption of, uh, you know, the dominant right. Protestant culture at the time that, 
you know, dead was basically death was basically the deadline for salvation. I, I just find it profoundly liberating mm-hmm. that the dead can even repent at all. And uh, yeah, I don't like deadlines. Yes, deadlines are terrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're the worst. Anyway, um, yeah, I think that's everything I wanted to uh, say about one thirty eight. And uh, yeah, you said a great deal, but do you want to say? Do you want to point out any particular verses? Any other verses in one thirty eight? No, I don't think so. Oh, this is amazing. Look at us. We are at the 40-something minute mark. We, this is amazing. This is a first. And this is the end of Doctrine and Covenants as well. So now yeah. we basically Oh, get... wait. I just thought of something. Of course you did. You got 20 minutes, Derek. Okay. And <laughs> this is going to be real quick. Like, I think we need to look at the the synergy of two of the factors. Well, well, three of the factors that went into the occasion behind Joseph F. Smith's revelation. The first one is, okay. like I said, and the most important, is that he didn't think he knew it all, and he was not content with, well, it was good enough for Joseph. It's good enough for me, right? The second is he looked at the situation on the ground and... and uh, Thought about the pandemic, thought about World War One, thought about death, thought about these things, thought, thought about his own impending death. But the third thing he did, he, he looked at the Bible. And, I, and you've already brought this out. It was that he went through the Bible and saw stuff that he didn't quite understand. And I just want to lift up Bible reading. I hate to, like push back on that but i think so many people think well the book of mormon is is our thing and we don't need the bible anymore and i can just replace the bible with the book of mormon and that's never what it was given to do the book of mormon should make you want to read the bible and the bible should make you want to read the book of mormon it should be Mm -hmm. like this this cycle right a lot of people say well the bible we don't need and i i definitely think that we are at our most vibrant and we've made our most progress when we've leaned into the Bible. If you look at all the revelations that we've got, all the revelations that Joseph got, they were they came about through pondering and investigating the Bible. Not so much the Book of Mormon. I can't think of any I can't think of any revelation in the DNC that was occasioned by a text in the Book of Mormon. Hmm. There might be, but I can't think of one right now. Revelations um, that were sorry. Revelations in the DNC that were occasioned by the reading of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, just a just the one that I can think of is the one that led to the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood. Oh yeah, like, okay. Yeah, about there, baptism there and stuff. Where, yeah, okay. Yeah, there were there were some, but my point is, I think we are ignoring one of the greatest treasures we have if we ignore the Bible. I think the Bible is important for bridging a lot of gaps, bridging gaps with the rest of the Christian world. Bridging gaps with the um, the New Testament era church, right? Like we can, uh, we are the restored New Testament church, and I think that's exactly what the the whole restoration was about: is restoring that. And um, we weren't the only ones. The Campbellites were restorationists too. They wanted mm-hmm. to get back to the Bible and say, "Well, let's look at the New Testament and reconstruct the church as it existed in the New Testament." So my point is, if we are the restored New Testament church, we should be the most passionate about the Bible. But sadly, culturally, we're not. And um, I, I really wish we could fix that. We would have so 
much more revelation and so much more wisdom and so much more treasure if we actually uh, did the Bible better, which is why I'm glad we're starting the Bible next year. So we're going to be doing two years of Bible, assuming the Come Follow Me is going to continue the pattern. Mm. And we're going to... uh, we're going to do the Bible. And it's it's really tricky because a lot of Latter-day Saints, they 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 kiss the Bible. Um, let me say it that way. They'll like take a little verse here out of context and use it to warm their heart. And and yeah, there's times where, where it's fine. There's times where I do that. But that is not really the uh, what the, the Bible was given for. Mm-hmm. I think that trying to read the underst- the Bible on its own terms, in its context, seeing what the original message was to the original audience is central to actually understanding the meaning of the Bible. I think culturally we've been taught to to use the the Bible like a like a token or a or a or a talisman or a, or a magic thing like just the the act of reading the Bible without understanding it somehow gives you blessing. Mm-hmm. But and, and maybe it does sometimes. But I think uh, the best blessing we have is to read and comprehend the message of the Bible, which is very hard to do in the King James version. And many English-speaking Latter-day Saints aren't really uh, willing to go outside the King James version to understand it. Anyway, we're gonna have more time to talk about about the Bible next for the next two years. You're stuck with me for the next two years. Can you that? <laughs> At least. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to addressing especially the uh, Hebrew Bible now that I've taken, you know, mm-hmm. classes on it. To uh, So it wasn't any of the stuff that I've told you over the past two years. It was this class that, that changed your mind. Is that what you're telling me? Well, Derek, we, you, you and I haven't had a lot of in-depth conversations on the Hebrew Bible. And secondly, I'm, I'm taking... I, I'm very much taking the class because of you. I would I would love to know the Bible like you, and more importantly, I would love to contribute to discussions on the Bible like you. That's that's probably more the reason I'm taking the class, and also the reason I'm excited to discuss because I will be more ready to talk about it than I would have been had I not taken it. And further, I'm learning things that I don't think I would have learned in, you know, the church education system. Well, I'm I, I'm learning things that. I haven't learned in the church education system. I've taken Old Testament at BYU. I've taken Old Testament Institute. They're not teaching me the stuff that I, they didn't teach me the stuff I'm learning now. So I'm looking forward to coming into the, to the Old Testament unit with, uh, with the knowledge that I've gained and with, with the conversations I've had. I'm anxious to share those with the folks. Yeah, I think there's a, yeah, and that gets a bit. Uh, so much of the time, the, the way the Bible gets used is there's little quotes out of context that are yeah, used to like yeah. justify something they already wanted to say. And but that's that's not actually what we'll we'll talk about this more next year. I'm sure <laughs> engaging with the manuals to see what they do with the manuals. You know, what might and, be fun to do is uh, like maybe even a precursor episode where we. I mean, I guess there's an introduction. Never mind. There'll be an introduction to the. To the Old Testament, I'm sure in the uh, in the Come Follow Me manual. I just want to remind you guys before we close that Dialogue, a, germ, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you on to called the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. Uh, the, it features in depth interviews about religion and culture, featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you are spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. 
Uh, learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and also Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. And you can also find us on Facebook. Yes. Uh, also want to send a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, as well as Stephanie March and Angela Carter for being a big help with our social media efforts. And uh, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Uh, these outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episodes from the same week. So you can have a nice little one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me uh, podcast outlines. Uh, the link to the outlines is going to be in the show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Uh, same goes for our transcripts if you're looking for those. And uh, the link, I believe, is tinyurl.com slash Outlines. Is that correct, Derek? Right. Cool. And uh, as far we don't got any we don't got any events or nothing that we got to put the people on to, do we? No, I don't think so. All right, then I guess that is it. Thank you guys for joining us. Till we meet again next week. Okay, till we meet again later. Bye bye.